E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Catherine Moore of Union Square Wines joins us today to talk about a long career selling wines in Lower Manhattan. Catherine Moore on the show today of Union Square Wines. Hello. I was born in the early 40s, um, and uh, I grew up in a family where wine and alcohol was not a part of our family culture. And I feel that's important to um, to notice or to remark on because I now work with um, staff who is half my age and younger, and they come from families where wine and spirits were um, consumed and talked about. Um, so they, they were exposed at a very early age. And I'm also finding that uh, when I first started in retail, um, a lot of us were um, coming at, to, to wine and retail as a second uh, profession or a second career. And there are now a number of people who are coming uh, straight as a first career uh, with uh, family backgrounds and education, wine education, uh, which wasn't available when we were starting. Uh, so, so in general, like you think America has shifted since the 40s in terms of the oh, amount of people who were regularly exposed to wine? Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, um, in our house, my mother thought she was daring when she served a tomato juice, a savory tomato juice with Worcestershire and basil or something. Um, at Christmas time, of course, we had eggnog and you took that before you slept because you did sleep after it. <laughs> what was Baltimore like at that time? Um, Baltimore was, uh, a, uh, segregated town, uh-huh. and, uh, whereas food was important, uh, to our family, and, uh, we did a lot of home entertaining, uh, because we were not allowed in restaurant, the, the major important restaurants in, uh, Because you're Baltimore. of color. You, yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you've read Exodus, uh, in the beginning, there's a scene which there's a, a dinner meeting at Miller Brothers, which was a, a very famous seafood restaurant, world, well, world known. Um, and uh, until I, even after I was in college, we were still not allowed to dine there. And, and so that idea of going to a restaurant and ordering a bottle of wine wasn't really open to you. Exactly. And that, that also is kind of plays into the fact that wine came a little bit later, maybe for you than for 
for younger kids today who yeah. might have the opportunity. And so you left Baltimore. Um, left Baltimore and um, went to school, uh, went to college, University of Maryland, undergraduate and graduate. Um, and the breakthrough came in 1965 when I uh, traveled to Europe for the first time with a small dance company, uh, which was um, uh, uh, touring England primarily, introducing American modern dance styles to uh, British uh, academics. So you were working as a, as a dancer in a modern dance company? Yes. And you, you went to Britain? Mm-hmm. And what was that experience like? Um, well, I, sherry parties. <laughs> yeah. That's still big there today. Uh, <laughs> You're way ahead of the game in the sherry trend. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, um, it was an interesting experience because, uh, it was, uh, our first European, uh, for all six of, of us, it was our first European, uh, experience. And, um, it uh, we left England and went to Germany, and there we were introduced to uh, something more than Liebfraumilch, which was the college trend at the time. Uh, and from Köln, we flew into Paris. And when I first looked out over the wing through a propeller, by the way, planes were props then, um, and saw the Eiffel Tower, I thought I had come home. Uh, and the first night we dined at Le Select in Montparnasse, and um, that I fell in love. I fell in love with with France and um, French cuisine, uh, French wines. Uh, we made a side trip to the Loire Valley to tour. And there I was introduced to uh, Vouvre and some of the Sauvignon Blancs uh, of the region. And uh, I was smitten. And did you find in the way that uh, people like James Baldwin found that Paris and France in general were more welcoming to you uh, Very definitely. as a person of color? Very definitely. And um, so you, you went to the Loire and you learned about Vouvre and then... Later, you got a chance to do harvest there? Uh, I did the harvest at uh, Gaston West, uh, 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 three vineyards, Le Mans, uh, and Claude de Bourg. And what was that experience like? What was Gaston Well, like? as a dancer, I certainly had known pain. Certainly as doing <laughs> gram technique, I'd known pain. But I, the first after the first day, that first night... I could not sleep because there was not one position more uh, comfortable enough for more than five minutes. Uh, and it was particularly embarrassing because I was working next to 85-year-old women who had no problem at all with this. Um, but maybe who did it every year. And, yeah. yeah. And, and that, was, uh, that was at the time, uh, certainly uh, Gaston was still there, uh, still alive. Uh, Constance, his wife, was very ill. But uh, Noel and uh, Penguet and Francoise uh, uh, had just married, and they were trying to um, modernize some of the, the uh, culture at the vineyard. Uh, but the older women would, for example, would not sit until their husbands had lifted their forks. Uh, at at the major meal in the, in the middle of the day, and this was in seventy five, nineteen seventy five. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
tours of maybe eight, eight to 11 kilometers away. These were 85-year-old women who'd never even been to tour. Um, they, in the chapel that uh, is uh, next to Clos de Bourg, um, the women sat separately from the men. Uh, very much uh, um, old time, old, the old school. And finally, by the second week, one of the women uh, worked up the nerve to ask me if they could rub my hand to see if that brown would come off. Really? Yeah. With, well, of course, some of the earth was on my hand. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's but, falling uh, on the floor, the soil. You know. <laughs> right. Oh, it comes off. But, I mean, uh, they probably just weren't used to seeing a, no, a, they a black weren't. person. No. And in between, uh, you had you'd gone to New York. And what were the job opportunities like in New York? That was actually after. Oh, it was after, I, sorry. Um, the job opportunities were minimal. I mean, you could be a, a woman, could be a, a cashier or a bookkeeper, but um, I really wanted to do something more substantial, having uh, had more extensive experience in, uh, in wine in France. But uh, that was... Not possible at that time. I think that it's changed radically. Um, there are more women in retail. There are more women in in wholesale and at the distributors level. There are more women in, as in the import business. Uh, there are more women making wine. But at, at that time, you found that the opportunity was more um, in administration or clerical. Yeah, clerical exactly, duties. exactly. And, and so, what did you end up? doing? Um, I wound up uh, as an administrator with Elliot Feld's uh, program to develop develop ballet dancers from uh, the public school system. And and how long were you doing that? Eighteen and a half years. And then uh, what was the shift back into the the wine world? Uh, The shift was, uh, I took some time off and I was crossing Union Square. and I um, saw the store. It was around holiday. It was November, holiday time, and I thought, you know, I remember going into that store to buy champagne for my staff last year, and they needed help because <laughs> it was a busy place. It was a busy place, and it, it was a busy time. And I thought, oh, surely they, you know, would need some extra help at that that time. And uh, so I went in. And I met Gary Tordenberg who said, yes, we need you, and introduced me to his uh, partner, Frank Altman, and um, I volunteered for the season. And, and then I became a part of the staff after that. And that was the old location? That was the old location on the park, uh, which was a, a great location. I mean, it was right across from the Green Market. It was around the corner from Union Square Cafe, um, and sandwiched in between the Heartland Brewery and the Blue Water Grill, um, and the subway, one of the subway exits. So it was um, it was it was a perfect place. And uh, the number thirty three Union Square West had been where Andy Warhol's um, print factory had been. So it was a so it was in uh, the same location as as Warhol's old old studio space. Yeah, that's pretty yeah, amazing. Yeah, and. So a lot of people were coming through, and you had uh, kept up your your visits to France through the the dance affiliation. And how did your relationship with wine kind of grow working at the shop? Um, I started to meet more people from the industry, uh, both uh, well, 
importers uh, like Robert Chatterton and what was Levy he like Bobby in Kent. person? Because uh, a oh, lot of people uh, never met him, you know. Right. Um, he did. Ha- he does have uh, a slightly patrician uh, aura about him, uh, but he also was um, very anxious to share information and uh, uh, inform uh, inform those whom he liked. And I don't know why he liked who he liked. But you, you got along. You, yeah, you were yes. close. And he did set up a, a little uh, junket uh, that I took with uh, a colleague there, Serena, uh, to Italy. And we were... We visited some of his vineyards, or some of the vineyards were, that he's associated with in Tuscany and Piedmont. What was that like? Uh, that was uh, pretty wild when you consider we're still alive, uh, having uh, tasted in the morning and driven in the afternoon. Uh, I, uh, I, th- I think we went from um, Quercibello, we went to Quercibello from uh, Siena. Um, and then uh, out to uh, Bogori, to Gradamaco, uh, up to Luca, to uh, Fubiano. Um, and one of the things that struck me at Fubiano, uh, which is in the Colli Lucchese, uh, was the, um, the relationship between the owners and the, the workers, the, the workers who... who uh, manage the olive grove and the the vineyards had been there was a family had been there five six generations and ownership they'd seen several owners come through um, and then their attitude was I mean when there were wars and and disputes they just sort of kept their heads down because they knew they were attached to the land and these other folks could hash out their problems because they would still be at the land whenever when, when, whenever the um, uh, problem was solved. Um, they talked about uh, uh, signals that they gave during the time of the Nazi uh, occupation in Mussolini and uh, how they would put different sheets out on the uh, laundry out on the uh, um, line to tell the owners who were hiding uh, when it was safe to come out. Uh, but they were very definitely attached to the land. They had survived it through survived it. multiple conflicts yeah. of regime. Exactly. And... Um, and from from Luca, we drove up to Torino, and from there visited uh, Monforte d'Alba and uh, Barolo. And did you visit with Barlo Mascarello? Because that's in Chatterton's. Yes, we did. Um, that that was after a morning of tasting about twenty wines, and uh, having lunch. And then walking around the square, the small town, trying to sober up uh, <laughs> to visit Bartolo. And he was a very frail man. He, uh, we felt that we were in the presence of greatness. Um, I had a little bit of Italian, and I had done very well up until then. Uh, but I, uh, Serena couldn't translate what he was saying quickly enough Um at that time, but uh, she did later. Uh, as we sat there listening to him as he was talking to um, another guest, uh, he sat there and without our knowing, drew 
dedicated uh, labels to each of us, um, which and I treasure that bottle. He he gave you a, a hand drawn label that he had done while you were waiting, yeah. uh, sitting uh, with yeah, him. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And, and then we took a tour of the winery with his daughter, who had, um, in her life, decided to be an art historian and uh, studied that, and but came back to wine. Uh, Bartolo was one of several major players in Barolo who had no sons to take over um, the... Uh, Did you going. feel a bond with Maria Teresa on that? That level of this is a female because, as you had mentioned, there weren't so many females. No, and she was the first on that trip who, um, whom we met, whom we had uh, met. And she had also kind of come from a cultural art background, yes. as you had. So maybe you, yeah. you, you could see something yeah. in that. And I guess you were in Monforte, so you got a chance to go to Rocca de Manzoni. Uh, exactly. What was uh, that visit like at that time? Um. At that time, they had just completed their new uh, their new storage areas, which were state of the art and just gorgeous architecturally. Um, we visited with the older son and the younger son. Um, I think uh, uh, the younger son has now taken over the responsibility, and he certainly seemed to be almost like a, a, a scientist, uh, cordial and warm as a person, but. Uh, you just very uh, his approach seemed very scientific and uh, um, structured and organized. And what other trips did you get a chance to take while you were uh, during that period of time? Where else did you find yourself? Um, that was the year two thousand, and what comes to mind immediately after that is two thousand one, uh, and uh, just after nine eleven. Uh, I had planned a trip to uh, France, and I was like, oh, should I go or shouldn't I go? And I decided to, to go. And um, I spent some time on the island of Porquerolles, where um, uh, there's a wonderful vineyard, La Courtade, that, with an Alsatian winemaker. And um, I spent a wonderful, relaxed time visiting uh, the winery and the vineyard with him. And because uh, you were working in downtown New York uh, during nine eleven, and exactly. that must have been somewhat of a different world than what you yeah. traveled to. Yes, very much so. Um, and I mean, everyone in France was very cordial and and welcoming and supportive. Um, but there I was on the island of Porquerolles, which is just east of Toulon, which is the major naval base on the Mediterranean for France, and so they're. You know, they're they're on high alert after nine eleven, and their patrol boats and aircraft carriers, etc., naval vessels going back and forth as you're lying out on the beach. Um, I guess that was reassuring, if not. And lying. Uh, after that, um, I visited uh, Chateau Pibernon up in uh, Bendol, and I had a, an appointment with the son. But the, his father, the count, and uh, his wife came out instead and said, we personally wanted to welcome you, and we're so glad that you came, and um, we're, we're, we're sad what what happened. And I mean, they were just really, really cordial. They, em they embraced you. Yes. And 
Let's see. Let's just stop for a second. Is it falling off? Let's see. It was a little. There you go. You look quite handsome in those, by the way. I want you to know that. Quite smart. Tuskegee Airman. No, you look great. Uh, so you're you're embraced in Bandol. Yeah, and of course that was a wonderful tasting, and um, that, that was a wonderful tasting and a wonderful welcome. Um, the count left other guests to come speak and and welcome us. And did you get a chance to to travel to Burgundy at all? Um, I did on a um, Bobby Catcher trip um, uh, at another later uh, to Dijon. And uh, that was a pretty incredible trip. I remember particularly uh, Henri Boyot's visit and our visit to his uh, winery and the tasting, uh, incredible whites. Um, and uh, that, that, was, and that, that was before John took over Henri Boyot. That was mm. before his son. That mm. Henri was still around. Yeah. Um, um, you had mentioned to me one time you went to DRC. Yeah, that was very, very early. Uh, that was back in the seventies. What was that experience like? Um, I, I mean, I was so young to the wine world that I didn't realize I was going to the Holy Grail. Um, but we, um, I was traveling with uh, Noel and a friend Alain, and we were invited to a vertical tasting and dinner at uh, at home, Aubert's home, uh, vertical tasting of Latash, and that was just out of this world. I I mean, when you start with that, where do you go? Um, And when when you don't have uh, a lot of education and and experience in the wine world, it doesn't take on the proper perspective. Now, Now I... I would love that opportunity, and I think I would appreciate it much more than I did at that time. Um, I They invited me to stay overnight, and the next morning, uh, 9.30 or so, uh, I had a polite knock at the door, and I was told I we had an appointment at Guy Lowe's at 10 o'clock to start tasting. Well, there I was lying in bed, and the room was spinning still. <laughs> I hadn't moved. Um what was Aubert like in the seventies? Uh, very unassuming. Mm-hmm. Like today, yeah. Just and you went and and you met Guy Rouleau? Yes. And and he was still around at that time. Still around in the seventies. I mean, everybody was very. I mean, I have never been to Bordeaux, but Burgundy uh, is just I very. Uh, small and and you know you're going into people's kitchens and it's not palatial um you drive down the main route and and the uh, signs look like a uh, restaurant wine list uh you know it's um and it's it's small you said well you know have i really had i mean have all the glasses of burgundy that i've had are they really burgundy? Because the production area looks tiny compared to, um, for I mean, the, the areas for you know, uh, compared to Bordeaux or or the Rhone. And uh, what was Union Square back home like over those years? I mean, Union while Squ- you were 
working there? What was well, the progression like? Are you talking about the the, the neighborhood? Yeah. Um, I first started working there at 890 Broadway um, in 1977, end of 77, and it was a light industrial area. At 6 o'clock, it was dark, and there was no one on the streets. I mean, we often, after the after the program was over in the evenings, we were writing proposals, and we would come out at 10 o'clock, and there was nobody on the streets. Um, that was the evening. In the morning, if you were coming through Union Square, that was a drug supermarket. And depending upon how you were dressed, you were offered either a joint or a Valium uh, or maybe a Darvon. Uh, that was a corporate uh, <laughs> offer if you were dressed up, Darvon. So a little different than A little uh, different and sort of the, as the green market came in, as, as Brownies became Union Square Cafe, um, as Danny started becoming active in the neighborhood and, and the green market expanded, um, the neighborhood gradually changed. Uh, Did you see that relationship with Danny being close to Robert Chatterton and, and then you're also selling some of the wines and they could, like people at the restaurant could be like, oh, you wanted to buy this? Yeah, you can go around the corner. That was a very good relationship. And it, I mean, that's the, I guess, the major difference between our current location and that location that uh, we're currently located at 13th Street and 4th Avenue, which is off the beat, off the beaten path, except if you're going to the post office. Um, it's about a block away. Like, it's just a on block the other south side. Of Union. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, certainly, people discovered us by accident. Um, either having gone to the green market or Danny's restaurant, because they weren't. It wasn't a place where people really hung out too much, and uh, until more recently, like Union Square wasn't an area where people went for leisure so much in the eighties. Yeah. Oh no! And no. so you're you're working there, and presumably uh, you have some people coming through the shop. Who are some of the importers and and wine people that may have come through? Um. Let's see, recently, Vietti. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Bob Foley. Bob Foley actually played there with his band. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, yeah, of Pride, Pride Mountain. Right. Um, who else? Um, the two winemakers, women winemakers from Chateauneuf de Pape, uh, Ferrando and Ferran. Oh, okay. Um. <clears throat> But back yeah. in the early days, I mean, yeah, I what was like it meeting like a young catcher and a young thief? What was what were those experiences like? Well, Bobby Catcher has more ener- has more energy than the Energizer Bunny. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, having having been on tour uh, on some of his little uh, tours. He's up before anybody uh, and. <clears throat> still there on the phone or in the evening when you're going back up to your rooms. Um, he's, he, he Clearly, uh, wine is his passion. Uh, clearly, he has dedicated uh, a lot of, uh, well, a, a good amount of energy to bringing um, the Costier de Nîmes to the forefront. And... Um, that's a real signature area for him. Yes, it's uh, what between Arles and Nîmes, and moving towards the Camargue, 
wonderful place. And the there, there are vineyards there that are very close to the terroir at Chateauneuf du Pape. You have these big galets, um, big stones, um, because that area was the original delta area of the Rhone as it went into the Mediterranean. So you got a chance to visit Costiera Nîmes. Yeah. What was what was that like? You went with Catcher. Oh, with Catcher, yeah. Um, again, uh, he well visiting the vineyards, and there was the um, there are a couple of wine, uh, women making wine there, uh, and uh, the. Uh, <laughs> Actually, one of them was in competition to buy the, her vineyard with um, a very well-known uh, Rhone vintner uh, 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 because he wanted the property because it was like Chateauneuf de Pop. And uh, she was, um, I guess she started out as a uh, more of a uh, producer. What was she I guess she sold uh, seeds, seeds, in the, but anyway, she be- has become a very well-known uh, winemaker. And um, did they embrace you in that community like they had in Burgundy? And- yes, yes, they did. And I was actually made a. Uh, I, I joined the Confrérie de Costa de Nîmes. Oh, okay. Oh, I have a medal and a certificate, and that's really neat. cool. Yeah. Um, and wh- how have you seen the opportunities uh, for women change in the business over the course of that time? I'm, I mean, uh, you've had a chance more recently to work again in a winery. What did those lessons teach you when you were working uh, on the on the production side? What is it like now that may have not been the case in the 70s? Well, um, as I had said, uh, I guess at the beginning, there are women, there are more women at every level of the wine world. And uh, my most recent visit was, uh, or, yeah, my most recent visit was uh, to the Finger Lake district and uh, with a special concentration on Lake Seneca. And uh, there's a winemaker at Fox Run whom I uh, met. And uh, there's there's much, it seems to be much more respect, and, and I think that was one of the last bastions, uh, last male bastions of uh, the wine world breaking in for women, uh, breaking into the, the uh, winemaking at the, at the winery level, the production level. And what was that experience like for you to go and uh, work with them? I mean, because you work on the, the cell side so often. It, it, you know, I... I even in most of my vacations or my my time that I, I spend um, at vineyards, uh, I feel a need to get back to the earth and to remind myself where this product comes from because so often I'll spend the whole day, in eight to nine to ten hours, without going outside. Um, so it's important to me to get back to the earth and back to the source and back to the people who actually nurture um, the wine most of the year, uh, if not three to four years, three to eight years before it hits the shelf. And do you feel uh, that their place in, in, in the 
greater cycle has increased in terms of prominence, in terms of people paying more attention to winemakers uh, and the production on terroir? Or yeah, I mean, I think there's more. We, from our customer base, we have people who who are traveling to certain areas, and they will ask us. Um, what wineries they can visit. So uh, they they do want to have the experience of going back to the earth as well and, and to the source. And how have you seen the what sells in the shop change over the years? Has, has customer ch- uh, preference changed? Um, I, yes, it has. I mean, one of the major uh, areas is the rosé wine. I think when I first started in 96, um, Behringer White Zin was considered the rosé, uh, and that was really for a very small group of people who didn't consider themselves aficionados, but were entry-level uh, people. Um, and aficionados were very snobbish about it, thinking that's all there is, or there's the nostalgic nostalgic bottle of Domaine Ott because they had spent um, a couple weeks in Provence and recognized the bottle shape. Um, every year, I think it uh, the sales have doubled, tripled, um, and the, the rosés are not only from Provence uh, and... They're from Italy, from the United States, from um, Spain, uh, Portugal. Uh, that has expanded um, big time. And, uh, and are there other categories as well that you think have really grown? Champagne. In champagne, the grower champagne um, has has leaped ahead. Uh, that not that people say that you know well i have heard and i'm not going to name the the brands but the the those old classic brands are not what they used to be and uh, the reason why is because the the small growers who uh, were selling their grapes or their juice to uh, the big guys uh, have started putting in their own names on the labels and you know it's coming from them directly from them now and you're you're getting a more interesting product. And the customers have reacted like it moves. It's not just something that goes on the shelf, but people buy it. Right. Yeah. Another area, um, uh, certainly because of the renewed interest in, in cocktails and the mixologist, um, the, uh, the handcrafted liquors and spirits are moving. Um, there's a great interest in them. Uh, uh, especially in in the younger population that uh, uh, does the bar scene, um, they don't necessarily purchase for for themselves. Uh, like they're going to go home and mix one of the mixologist drinks, mixologist drinks. But if they're having a party, they will definitely focus on two or three of their favorites. Because it's not just the wine store; you you have long sold spirits yes. as well. Yes. And the, the one of the uh, I guess newcomers on the scene, uh, big time, are the uh, new New York or local distilleries. Have you found that they've expanded in in output in in what's available? Yes. And um, <clears throat> have you seen the spirits side um, become more um, attuned to the sorts of trends that you see on the wine side? Like a, when you say artisanal, do you think that 
it's um, sort of spirits for wine people. Yes. And kind of getting bigger in those kind of categories rather than the big brands. Kind of exactly. like what happened with Grower Champagne. Really. Exactly. And what do you think will happen uh, in the future with Union Square Wines? You've been there for how many years? Uh, since 96. And you guys have the fresh direct uh, relationship where you uh, sell wine online to people buying the groceries. Um, yes. And you're the outlet for that. What, what's next for Union Square Wines? What will happen in the next five years or so? Um, I think that's um, a question that um, Jesse uh, Salazar, our, our wine director, um, and Mitchell uh, Sudak, the owner, and uh, the staff are, are examining. Yeah. And when you have uh, hired and worked as a manager with the different staff members, how have you seen that makeup change over the years? Um, you mentioned that people are getting a little younger, but who usually comes in to apply for a retail wine job these days? Uh, generally, people who are well, definitely younger young people uh, in their early 20s, um, people who are uh, wavering between restaurants and wine. And they they uh, work at Union Square, and you guys have a lot of tasting opportunities in terms of... Tasting opportunities to... with... Uh, scheduled uh, tasting opportunities with with uh, importers, distributors. Uh, we also have the enomatic machines, which were developed in Italy. We have uh, 48 selections of choices uh, available at any time. And this is uh, accessed through a loyalty program. They earn points, the customer earns points with each purchase, and those accumulated points can be used to taste, um, to access the, the machines. So there's a lot open for people to taste. Yeah, different bottles. And do you find that wine is really a part of a broader cultural engagement for you in the way that dance might be part of culture or literature? I think it's a part of the fabric of my my, my life, as um, as I think it is for most of our customers. I mean, it's um, difficult for me to go any place in the city when I'm not at the store and not run into a customer. Um, and that includes Lincoln Center Jazz most recently, uh, Carnegie Hall, uh, Music Before 1800s up at Columbia. Um, one, one morning when I had just arrived in Paris, as a matter of fact, I was sitting, having dumped off my baggage, waiting for my room to be ready, and I was sitting at a cafe on Ile Saint-Louis having my coffee, my morning coffee. And, oh, I'm in Paris again. And someone says, Catherine. I thought, oh, no. No, they must be calling someone else. Right, right. It was an importer who was visiting a friend in an apartment across the street. I went to a concert uh, at Saint-Jean-de-Pauvre, which is just across from Notre Dame. Right in front of me, at the, waiting for tickets, were customers. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's become a fab, part of the fabric of my life. And uh, I also belong to a book group which happened because I ran into a, a, a distributor from uh, uh, someone on the staff at Martin Scott in my lobby and said, what are you doing in my building? And she said, I'm going to book club uh, on my floor, like next door. So I was invited to this book club. And uh, as it's sort of become tradition now uh, for me to link, uh, bring a wine 
that's linked to what we're reading. Oh, okay. And the last book was very challenging because it was a book, um, The Round Table, uh, that takes place on an Indian reservation. A uh, 13-year-old boy is uh, trying to find justice for a terrible crime committed against his mother. So, I mean, wine, an Indian reservation in the Midwest, what, what do you do? And um, I found Dash, Les Enfants Terribles. Nice choice. Zinfandel, it's fabulous. And, and speaking about the changes in the champagne market, you also had an engagement with Biacard Simon. What was that like? Um, well, it was very interesting. Nicolas Nicola, uh, Biacard uh, visited our store on, on Union Square and did a, a tasting of uh, the non-vintage, the, both the Brut and the uh, Rosé and uh, Cuvée Elizabeth. And uh, many people who know of the Rosé um, always assumed that Salomon uh, referred to the color, the color of the rosé. In fact, it uh, refers to two families that came together, explained that Billy Cart had the land and Salomon had the money. Uh, and that's, that's a good combination. Right, exactly. But I did have a chance to visit the uh, to visit uh, Billy Cart and Maroy Sarai um, last year or two last two years, and. Um, that was a wonderful uh, visit. The alarming thing, we stood in their uh, Pinot Noir uh, plot next to the winery, and that was two months ahead of schedule, uh, signaling we're in full uh, impact of global warming, and uh, it's making a lot of people nervous. However, uh, there are some people who, who are more northern who say bring it on because it means that it expands the uh, varietals uh, that they can plant and nurture. I also had the chance to visit, before that, to visit Boulanger, and um, that was just incredible, and especially hearing some of the stories about um, the the. the experiences during uh, the Nazi um, occupation and Madame Boulanger, whom I, I, I adore her quote about when to drink champagne. Um, but um, uh, the fact that uh, they, the, the winery hid a, a good number of, of their bottles uh, by just blocking off tunnels... Uh, but Madame uh, Boulanger also had to host the Weinführer, who had come to uh, pick up a few things to take back home. And she purposely uh, sat behind her desk and found the smallest chair she could for the very corpulent <laughs> cor- uh, corpulent uh, Weinführer, who had to stand uh, and uh, didn't like standing before a woman, <laughs> and uh, promptly shortened his visit, uh, probably saving a lot of good wine. And, and you, you mentioned global warming. How else do you think wine uh, styles maybe have changed what, what's in the bottle over the years? Have things altered a little bit over the decades? I think there might be uh, yes, higher alcohol levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a result of global warming. Um, and what did you see with the rise of like wine critics in, in the 90s? Did that affect at all 
the selections at the shop or what people were interested in at the consumer level? Um, I, it, definitely. I, uh, the press is very influential uh, uh, to um, the general public. Um, in fact, sometimes it's annoying if you're uh, trying to um, uh, develop a relationship with a client and they're going to rely more on points given by critics or uh, wine press rather than listening to the sales staff. There's a sense that they're not letting you in from what you have to say sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I can tell you that we had an immediate uh, bump in the Bedell Merlot uh, 2009 sales because that was the wine served at the inaugural lunch about a week ago. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful to speak with you. I appreciate you being here. Catherine Moore from Union Square Wines. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.